Tonight on the City Club of Idaho Falls rebroadcast on KISU, we feature the July 11th annual dinner fundraising meeting on the topic Hunting for Hamilton, the man, the myth, the musical, with featured speaker Dr. Joanne Freeman, professor of history and American studies at Yale University and one of the nation's leading experts on Alexander Hamilton. Our rebroadcast tonight will run into the 8 o'clock hour Introducing the guest speaker for the July 11th City Club of Idaho Falls Forum, here's Dr. David Adler. Before we get started, I want you to take note of this historic day. I know you're all familiar with the importance of this date. This is July 11, 2018, and if I said to you, Happy Dueling Day, um, and, and of course, I'm, I'm talking about Donald Trump's duel with our NATO allies today. You thought it might be otherwise. So we do indeed have a great program in store. I'm going to introduce our speaker, Professor Joanne Freeman, in a little bit. But I wanted to introduce some key members of both uh, institutes today. Our annual program, this is the 11th program, uh, the, the uh, 11th annual program for the City Club, if some of you uh, were there at the beginning uh, when we featured at our inaugural program uh, Governor Cecil Andrus and Senator James McClure. Um, and the idea was in a polarized time, could we bring both Republicans and Democrats together under one tent? And we did. And since then, we've been going strong. As you know, we have monthly programs. We're above 100 now in terms of the number of programs we've had over 11 years. If I could do math, I would actually give you the precise number, but I can't do that. Uh, so we're very happy that uh, many of you have been with us 11 years. And I would say, for those of you who have been with us along the way, you don't look any different now than you did a decade or so ago. That's very good news. The City Club board is uh, very nicely represented here tonight, so I'd like to introduce some members from our board and, and ask them to stand. They work hard on the program across the year, and they're really committed to the idea of civil dialogue. So let me introduce, first of all, our amazing president, Jerry Scheid, uh, whom you all know. Seated next to Jerry is Tim Hopkins. And also at this table is Liza Leonard. You can see they're all of the same vintage. I think they went to high school together. I uh, thank you. At this table next to, to those members is Mark Young right here. And of course, the venerable Lexi French, our famous actress here in town, a board member as well. And I see Ann Howell hiding way back there in the middle of the room. Ann, please stand and thank you so much for all these beautiful arrangements here at the stage. And I see Greg Crockett, my good friend, a fellow uh, founding member of the board is here. And now the very fact that you all chose not to sit together leaves me to guess who have I missed here as I look around the 
room, and I'm sure I haven't missed anybody. I hope not. Uh, the Alturas Institute has a few board members here tonight as well, and I'd like to introduce them. Uh, Tim Hopkins, please stand again. We're going to keep you standing, sitting, great. And over here to the right is Mark Young, another founding member of the Alturas Institute. A recent member, Stacy Walsh, uh, President and CEO of Walsh Engineering. We're very glad to have Stacy. I'm sorry, Stephanie Walsh. I'm so sorry, of course. New Year, is that all right? Yes. And you're going to meet Joanne Freeman later, but Joanne Freeman is also a member of the Board of Directors of the Altouris Institute. So speaking of Joanne Freeman, on this anniversary of the famous duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr in 1804, which is going to be the subject of Professor Freeman's discussion tonight, uh, I want you to understand just how fortunate we feel to have her here tonight. If we began the evening with a short remark about Donald Trump and his duel with NATO allies, and we've mentioned the name Alexander Hamilton a couple of times, let me just say that those of us on the boards believe that in having Joanne Freeman with us tonight, is something like a Midsummer Night's Dream, bringing in a little Shakespeare. Now, if you think it's difficult to put Trump and Hamilton and Shakespeare into one sentence, I worked at that. <laughs> Joanne Freeman is a distinguished professor of history at Yale University. She is a renowned Alexander Hamilton lecturer lecturer and expert. She has written widely and spoken widely about Alexander Hamilton over the years. You're going to learn about her deep interest in Hamilton going back roughly 40 years. I think she started when she was about six years old. Uh, you have seen Professor Freeman on a number of television programs, documentaries promoted by PBS, CBS, the Discovery Channel, dealing with Alexander Hamilton and other founders. She has become one of those go-to scholars by the networks uh, when they need expert commentary on Alexander Hamilton. She grew up in Queens. Her family moved to Los Angeles when she was a, a youngster. She went to Pomona College, the distinguished liberal uh, arts undergraduate institution part of the Claremont Colleges in LA, where she earned a BA, and then she moved from the West Coast to the East Coast, where she earned a master's and a PhD in history at the University of Virginia. But Joanne Freeman was not a typical student, one who goes from an undergraduate status to graduate school. After she finished at Pomona, she became uh, a public speaker, what we would call a public historian, uh, lecturing at the Smithsonian, the Library of Congress, and a number of other venues. And as she tells the story, she was 30 years old before she decided to go to graduate school. 
And so when she did, she studied under one of the nation's leading uh, historians from the early period. She found her niche. And when she landed at the University of Virginia, she surprised the faculty with her uh, detailed knowledge of Alexander Hamilton because she had been reading Alexander Hamilton's letters by that time for roughly half her life. Now, some of you might pick up John Grisham or Tom Clancy in another day, but young Joanne Friedman was reading all the 30 volumes of Alexander Hamilton's writings and when she was a student at University of Virginia and her major professor invited her to, uh, to teach a course with him on Jefferson and Hamilton, uh, the professor already had a collection of writings on Thomas Jefferson, but they didn't have a collection of writings on Alexander Hamilton. So Joanne said, well, I can put together a collection of writings. And because she'd been steeped in the writings of Hamilton for years, it took her only several days to do that. It was many years later, as she compiled that huge reading collection, several years later when she went to Yale, she realized she'd already produced her first book. She just didn't know it, and it was Alexander Hamilton uh, letters for the library, for the American library. So she was one of those rare students who actually wrote a book while she was a graduate student. In addition to that book published in 2001, she amazed the world of history with her first major book called Affairs of Honor which dealt with the great violence and the duels in American history. And that was published to great acclaim, marvelous reviews. It launched her on a great trajectory toward recognition and prominence in the world of scholarly historians. And by the way, that book was published on September 11, 2001. Story is there. We'll come back to that later. Since then, uh, Joanne has produced a number of other works. She has produced a second volume of, of Hamilton's writings, The Essential Hamilton, Letters and Other Writings. And then her next major book is going to be published in September, and this deals, this is called The Field of Blood, which deals with the great violence in Congress during the antebellum period. Those books are on sale over here, and I know a number of you have already purchased them, and, and she's happy to sign them. This next book coming out in September is going to be published on what date? You guessed it, September 11. So it just happens to be the case that her books are coming out on September 11. So Joanne Freeman is a widely sought after speaker around the United States and in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, we're very, very pleased to have her here tonight to join us to talk about Alexander Hamilton, the man, the myth, and the musical. And by the way, when we're done, I'll join Joanne up here and do a little Q&A interview, which I promise will be a lot of fun. So please welcome Joanne Freeman to the podium. Good evening. Uh, it's such a great pleasure for me to be here. I've been looking forward to this. And indeed, when we were first talking about my coming down here to speak, we did think, wouldn't it be appropriate if I'm here talking about Hamilton on Dual Day, which is today? 
and so that's why I have indeed decided that what I want to focus on this evening is really to talk about the Burr-Hamilton duel and to give you some background into dueling in this period that I think is going to make that duel look a little different from how you might have thought about it before. Now, I'll confess that over the years, I have studied the Burr-Hamilton duel in some pretty interesting ways. So, for example, um, I watched reenactments. There was a PBS documentary in which they reenacted the duel, and of course I had to go be there so that I could see the duel be reenacted. And I got so up close and personal with my subject that when Hamilton was shot, I was splattered with his blood. <laughs> Just really getting up close and personal with your subject. Um, I've had the opportunity to shoot a black powder dueling pistol because I thought, well, if I'm writing about duelists, I guess I should know what it's like to shoot a black powder dueling pistol. Of course, I had goggles on and earphones and things, so it was hardly historically accurate, but really fascinating to do. So I've uh, had some interesting moments studying Hamilton over the years. But getting a hands-on sense of dueling and the duel is one thing. Understanding dueling and this particular duel is another thing entirely. Because it's so famous, the Burr-Hamilton duel is often treated as if it were the only political duel in American history. Like it was a one-of-a-kind incident. And I think for that reason, it often is something of a mystery. Questions about the Burr-Hamilton duel abound. Why did Hamilton agree to fight? Why didn't he just refuse to? Why was Burr so intent on fighting Hamilton? What was the mysterious insult that caused Burr to initiate the duel in the first place? Faced with two men who made what seems like an irrational decision to shoot at each other on a dueling ground, many scholars have decided that there can't be a logical explanation, and thus they've decided that, well, what explains this duel best is irrational emotion. Hamilton must have been suicidal, Burr must have been a sort of bloodthirsty murderer, and there you go, that's the explanation for the duel. Well, obviously, I am here to say more than that. And what we're going to do tonight is go beyond that kind of a non-explanation and really get to the root of the Burr-Hamilton duel by looking at it in the context of its time. Because regardless of what we think about the practice of dueling, Burr and Hamilton considered it logical. Like hundreds of other politicians at the time, they actually reasoned their way onto a dueling ground. And so what I want to do this evening is climb into their heads and look at that logic and really explore the purpose and the significance of dueling to politicians in early America. Now, one of the first things that we have to grapple with when we're talking about dueling at all, and particularly in early America, is the concept of honor. Right? We have our sort of modern understanding of honor. Uh, honor for an early American politician was something that was even more immediate and more crucial. Any gentleman of the period considered his honor and reputation to be his most valued possessions. To be dishonored was to lose your sense of self, your manhood, your status. To be ashamed to face your friends and family. Honor was even more important for politicians who based their careers on public opinion. In early America, it was character and reputation that qualified you for public office, not job skills or talents. Elections went to the man with the best reputation, the man who the public most respected. So if you wanted to get voted into office, if you wanted to get your friends into office, if you wanted to exercise any kind of power or influence, you needed to have the right kind of reputation. So for an early American politician, Honor was more than just kind of a vague sense of self-worth. It really represented his ability to prove himself a deserving political leader. 
Now, among men who were so touchy about their reputations, rules of behavior were very important. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Because if insults in that kind of a world carry such grave consequences, right, if, if the wrong word or the wrong insult might lead to disrespect, dishonor, or the dueling ground, there have to be really clearly defined rules and standards so that accidental insults and unintended violence can be avoided. So the rules of honor, the code of honor, set out really clear standards of conduct. There were certain words you were not ever supposed to say about another gentleman. There were certain actions you were never supposed to do. And when a line was crossed and honor was offended, the code of honor offered a regulated way to settle the dispute, hopefully with negotiations, but sometimes with gunplay on a dueling ground. So for example, there were a number of um, what I always call alarm bell words that you could never use in reference to another gentleman. Some of them are gonna sound logical and then my personal favorite is not gonna sound logical at all. So liar and coward, right? You don't obviously ever wanna call another gentleman liar or coward. Those are, those are the two worst. Um, and it's almost like if someone calls you that, you almost immediately need to challenge them to a duel. The next two are, have lost a little bit of their zing over the years, rascal and scoundrel. It's kind of hard to imagine someone shooting someone over you rascal, but indeed. My personal favorite alarm bell dueling word is puppy. Puppy. Which does not sound like you should be shooting someone by calling them a puppy. I think that's like emasculating in some way, and so it was deeply insulting. But indeed, puppy was a dangerous word to utter, to call someone in this time period. And if you uttered any of those words against another gentleman, that gentleman, it was almost like a dare. It was almost like you were inviting that person to fight you in a duel. So you had to respond, and if you didn't, you would be really dishonoring yourself. So let's look for a minute at one of those words, actually two of those words, in action. In 1797, Hamilton and James Monroe, and this is actually future President James Monroe, became involved in a controversy. Hamilton believed that Monroe had leaked some damaging information to the press. So Hamilton is outraged. He went to Monroe's house to demand an explanation, and he sends a note before he goes, and it says, I am coming to seek an explanation. I am bringing along a friend, or in other words, a second, kind of his dual assistant in case things should turn ugly. As soon as Hamilton told Monroe that he and a friend were coming to Monroe's house, Monroe knew for certain that there was the potential for a duel in the works, so Monroe brought a friend to be at this meeting too, and luckily for us, Monroe's friend was a very good second, and he recorded the entire conversation, which is quite wonderful. So Hamilton and Monroe really hated each other, like really hated each other, and you can tell this when you read the conversation. Things didn't start out too well. Hamilton was a really logical thinker, he wanted to go step by step through the controversy. You know, then I did this, then you said this, then this happened. Monroe didn't want any of it. He just wanted it to be over with. He just wanted Hamilton to say whatever he had to say. So he kept interrupting Hamilton. And every time he was interrupted, Hamilton would go back to the beginning and start again. <laughs> so they were not really having a very fun time of it. It did not take very long for both of them to lose their patience. Hamilton getting clearly like angrier and angrier, Monroe getting icier and icier until Hamilton finally, bluntly, accused Monroe of leaking the information. And when Monroe denied it, Hamilton said, and listen carefully to his word choice here, this as your representation is totally false. He has not used the L word, right? He, he did not say, 
you're a liar, which is basically the meaning of that, but he said that is your representation is totally false. Despite the fact that he didn't use the L word, the accusation was serious enough to have an impact, and what happened at the next moment is really fascinating. To both men, it was so clear as soon as Hamilton said that, that a line had been crossed, that as soon as those words left Hamilton's mouth, they were both on their feet. Now they both assumed that this was moving onto the ground of possibly being an affair of honor. Monroe responded by taking what felt to him like a dare and pushing it one step further, saying, do you say I represented falsely? You are a scoundrel. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I very much wanted that ooh, right? So serious buzzword number two. Hamilton responded, as any man of honor would, by saying, fine, I will meet you like a gentleman, meaning I'm ready to duel. Monroe said, I am ready, get your pistols. And at that point, their two friends stepped in and pulled them apart and sat them down and basically said, let's pretend like that didn't happen and try and have a conversation again. Now, that incident unfolded a lot more quickly than a lot of honor disputes, and the two men lost their tempers, which was not what a man of honor was supposed to do. Most honor disputes were different, and they followed these very predictable ritualistic steps. In a more conventional dispute, Hamilton would have sent a kind of code letter, like a, like a form letter, to Monroe, and it would have included five basic statements. He would have said, first, I've been told you insulted me, Second, he would repeat that insult very precisely. Third, he would ask, is this true or false? Did you say this or not? Avow it, deny it. Fourth, it would say, do you have any explanation? And then fifth, it would say, I demand an immediate response as the re and I do the respect as a man of honor. If you get that kind of a letter in this time period, which really is kind of a form letter, you know you're in trouble, right? You now know someone feels insulted, they are stepping forward, they are initiating some form of negotiation, they are coming to you and giving you a chance to explain yourself, but if you go down the wrong path or say the wrong thing, things might end up on a dueling ground. So, but if you think about it, that letter does give the person who receives it a chance to explain himself or to say, I didn't mean it, or to say, you know, I'd had five drinks, whatever it is that they wanted to say. Like, there were, there, at least that was a letter that allowed for a duel to be avoided if it was possible. Typically, it's after that kind of a letter was sent that the two men would appoint a second to represent them, and this person acted essentially like a kind of lawyer, negotiating terms for his client, trying to appease the offended party without humiliating the person who did the insulting. And normally, negotiations could take days or weeks or even months. And in the case of Hamilton and Monroe, they actually, for months, exchanged letters with each other, each saying in basically almost the same thing in each letter, saying, I'm ready to fight when you are. And then the other guy would get the letter and he'd send one back saying, I'm ready to fight when you are. They never fought. And after a couple months of ridiculous letters being sent back and forth, neither one of them ever doing anything, they both decided that they, of course, had won the duel and the other guy was a coward, and it ended. So kind of pointless. But they both emerged feeling that they had protected their honor. Now, the negotiating process was extremely important and extremely ritualized because it enabled those involved to really display their honor, their superior character by being calm and passionless and even haughty in the face of death. So ideally, they allowed honor to be satisfied without any violence. 
And this is a little counterintuitive, but it's true nonetheless. The point of an affair of honor was to demonstrate that you were willing to die for your honor, not necessarily to engage in gunplay. The point was to prove that you were willing to die to protect your name. And often, negotiations enabled that to happen. But sometimes negotiations weren't enough. Sometimes, when an offense was particularly serious, an offended man felt that the only way to redeem his honor would be to risk his life on the dueling ground, to really prove his honor under fire. And in such cases, to force his opponent into a duel, a seriously dishonored politician usually demanded a humiliating apology something so humiliating that he knew the person he was demanding it of could never make it, and at that point negotiations would stop and a duel would be the only alternative. But it's important to note, even at this point, so even if you're destined for the dueling ground, the goal of a duel, this is yet another counterintuitive point, the goal of a duel was not to kill your opponent. Deaths were relatively rare in political duels. The point was to be there and be willing to die. Wounds, typically, there were a lot of leg wounds. I remember once finding in a newspaper account, someone referred to that fashionable scar on the shin. You know, there were a lot of shin wounds in duels. Um, the, the point of a duel was really to prove your willingness to die for your honor, not to kill the person who dishonored you. And in fact, very often, duelists who killed their opponents fell victim to such outrage that they had to flee the state for a while. In many ways, a duelist who killed his opponent was a failed duelist because very often, rather than redeeming his reputation, he damaged it. Now, once you understand political dueling in this way, so once you see the negotiations and the letters and how they're all part of a big process, you discover that there were many affairs of honor in early America, many more than most people have ever assumed. So for example, Hamilton fought at least 10 of those kinds of affairs of honor. No gunplay, no dueling ground, but these very careful negotiated letters sent back and forth 10 times. I have to say, I mean, that's pretty high. <laughs> that tells you something about Hamilton, 10 times. And supposedly, before his final duel with Burr, at least once, perhaps twice before, he'd negotiated his way out of a duel with Burr. But these are sort of invisible because there was no shooting people haven't recognized in the past that these really were affairs of honor. In New York City alone, in the 12 years surrounding the Burr-Hamilton duel, there were at least 17 other political duels. So in other words, the Burr-Hamilton duel was not this sort of grand exception, but really part of a larger trend. Now, when you look at all of these duels together, you see patterns, right? Patterns make historians happy. You see patterns. So for example, you notice that most of these duels happened shortly after an election. You notice that some of them were deliberately provoked. And a common ploy would be that one man would call another a self-interested politician, and the person would say the obvious response, you're a liar, you got a duel. And in most cases, the loser of the election or one of his friends would provoke the winner or one of the winner's friends into a duel. So these aren't sort of an accidental slip of the tongue kind of duel. These are deliberately provoked duels. They're strategically timed. So in other words, many early American politicians use political duels as a kind of counter-election. If you were dishonored by a lost election, a, a democratic contest, you could sometimes try to redeem your reputation with this sort of aristocratic practice of dueling, a contest of honor. 
So these kinds of duels are not impulsive, they're not irrational, they're not guided by uncontrollable suicidal impulses or murderous rage. American political duels were really well-planned political messages. They were deliberate attempts to redeem an electoral loss and prove oneself eligible for future leadership. Okay, so with that lead up, let's turn to the Burr-Hamilton duel. So the year is 1804. Burr is vice president of the United States, but his national political career is not doing very well. Thomas Jefferson, president at the time, really didn't trust him, basically cut him out of his administration. So Burr is quite aware that he's not gonna have a second chance at the vice presidency. He still wants to have a position of leadership of some kind. So he decides, okay, I'm gonna turn to state politics. And he decides to run for governor of New York. And New York in this period was a really pivotal kind of swing state in national elections. So being governor of New York actually, as far as governors went, was a position that had some importance. Now Hamilton at this point was a practicing lawyer in New York City who had been unofficially ousted from his position as leader of the Federalists. By 1804, he had proven several times over that he really could not control his pen or really his mouth. He had written a lot of unwise pamphlets. He had said many unfortunate things that led to those 10 affairs of honor that I just mentioned. None of it did much to help his career or his political party, so that by 1801, one of his friends said that Hamilton was no longer a leader worth following because he was, quote, radically deficient in discretion, which is a really polite way of saying he just doesn't know when to shut up. So he's not really active in 1804, politically speaking, but he came out of the shadows when he learned that the man he most distrusted in the world, Aaron Burr, was running for governor of his own state. Now, by 1804, Burr and Hamilton had been political rivals for 15 years. And that rivalry resulted in part from their many similarities. And if Hamilton were looking down from founder heaven, I would get struck by lightning for saying that. I'm very sorry, but <laughs> Burr and Hamilton did indeed have many similarities. They did. Uh, they were intense men. They were ambitious men. They were flirtatious with women and competitive with men. They moved in the same social circles. They went to the same parties. They had a lot of the same friends. They even invited one another to dinner parties on occasion and sometimes argued legal cases together as joint counsel. But there was one way in which the two men were different, or at least Hamilton certainly claimed this. Hamilton was exceedingly ambitious, so there's no denying that, but he felt that he was guided by his thirst for fame as it was understood at the time. So we're not talking Kim Kardashian fame, but rather we're talking a really fame in the, uh, with a meaning that goes all the way back to ancient Greece and Rome. Largely earning fame in Hamilton's time meant winning glory in the eyes of posterity by serving the public good. Hamilton felt that that's what guided him. Burr didn't tend to make those kinds of claims. So while he was a man of honor, he was a man of creative politics. He was something of an, a political opportunist. And he tended to seize on the politics of the moment and get things done. He really wasn't thinking about his eternal fame. He didn't seem to have pesky political principles binding him down. As one politician put it, Burr was an incredibly useful person to have around during elections. You know, he doesn't really seem to have a lot of principles. What a handy guy. <laughs> He'll do almost anything. Well, this was terrifying to Hamilton, right? Burr is talented, he's charming, he's just as ambitious as Hamilton was, but to Hamilton, Burr doesn't seem to have any kind of political restraint. He doesn't seem to have any kind of guiding star holding him back. In 1804, that fact, joined with the idea that Burr might be the leading politician in Hamilton's home state of New York, 
really struck terror into Hamilton's heart. And in fact, Hamilton could well imagine that the opportunistic Burr, who was the grandson of the great New England divine Jonathan Edwards, might use his ancestry, his credentials, and his power to make himself the leader of all New England and goad the North to secede from the Union with Burr at its head, which I know sounds insane, but at this period, the Union was still, hadn't been around for that long, and people were never quite sure whether it was gonna hold together, so this wasn't Hamilton being crazy, this was actually something that he worried about with some reason. There was really still no telling at this point if the Constitution or the Union would survive beyond its first decade or so. And for me, as someone who's delved into letters from this period for many, many years, I always find it really fascinating. Every once in a while, you'll see in a letter um, a kind of a throwaway line that'll say, like a letter, let's say, from 1792, so the government's been in existence for just a couple of years. And someone will say in a letter to a friend, you know, if this government lasts a few more years, here's what we should do. We, don't, we have a lot of inevitability that we assume about the founding. Even the phrase, the founding, sounds inevitable, but it didn't feel that way to the people who were there at the time. So for all of these reasons, to Hamilton, Burr had to be stopped for reasons both personal and political. So he basically focused on destroying Burr's campaign for governor. Now the roots of the duel were at a dinner party in Albany, New York. Hamilton was there. Another Federalist was there named Charles Cooper. And Cooper wrote a letter to a friend describing the party. And this is going to be a really bad paraphrase of Cooper's letter. But Cooper basically said, you should have heard Hamilton talking about Burr over dinner. He said that Burr was a dangerous man who was not fit to hold the reins of government. And I could tell you a still more despicable opinion, which General Hamilton expressed of Mr. Burr, but I won't because letters tend to get lost or stolen from the mail and printed in newspapers. It's dangerous to put that sort of thing in writing. So of course, guess what, guess what happens to that letter? Stolen, published, and indeed. So Charles Cooper's letter in which he's recounting Hamilton's angry speech and holding back that despicable comment ends up in a newspaper. Burr lost the gubernatorial election. Hamilton actually probably didn't have a lot of influence in that, but he had been out there working against Burr. And Burr really felt humiliated by that loss. He had been ousted from the vice presidency. Now he had been publicly voted not good enough to be governor. So he began to feel desperate to prove that he was still a deserving political leader, especially to his supporters who were beginning to doubt him. Why cling to Burr as a political leader if he really couldn't offer you any patronage or power or influence? And some supporters at this point said that quite literally to Burr. He had to fight back. As one put it, if he tamely sat down in silence, what must have been the feelings of his friends? They must have considered him as a man not possessing sufficient firmness to defend his own character and consequently unworthy of our support. So to prove himself a political leader, Burr really did have to redeem his reputation. He's in that frame of mind when someone comes with a newspaper clipping and says, did you see this? It's this letter from Charles Cooper. Now, it's important to note at this point, Burr is not thinking, oh good, I get to slaughter Hamilton. Right? Rather, he's thinking, I've been humiliated. My political career is dying. I have to prove my worth somehow, and now, here in my hand is authentic evidence of someone attacking my honor, and better yet, it's Hamilton attacking me, and he's been doing this for 15 years. So for Burr, defending his honor felt necessary. It made sense. 
Hamilton's specific insult, whatever that despicable thing is that he said, really made little difference. Burr just needed a way to prove his honor, and Hamilton's general remarks were on paper at hand. It didn't matter if Burr didn't know the precise despicable thing that Hamilton had said. Burr just needed to defend his honor. Here was his chance. So Burr sent Hamilton an alarm bell letter on June 18th, including those five key phrases. He said, you've insulted me. You said something still more despicable about me. Is this true or false? Do you have an explanation? Reply promptly, as I deserve as a man of honor. Okay, so Hamilton gets this letter and clearly it's a threat. He knows Im immediately what it is. He knows now that Burr's honor has been insulted and he has to really think about his actions and words because now he's on the cusp of potentially inviting a duel. But he was puzzled. Burr accused him of saying something despicable, but there was no specific insult for him to deny or explain. So how could his remarks justify a duel? But what was he apologizing for? And his response to Burr's alarm bell letter shows how torn Hamilton was between his need to really face Burr's challenge and defend his honor and his very natural desire to not get his way into a duel. So he tries to essentially tap dance his way out of his predicament. He, be, he writes a long letter. So Burr's letter is like five sentences long. Hamilton's is pages. And in that letter of a response, there's this long tortured argument about the meaning, the precise meaning of the word despicable. <laughs> Let's talk about the meaning of the word despicable. What does despicable mean anyway? Right? So essentially a little bit of a grammar lesson. To Burr, that sounded precisely like that, an insulting grammar lesson. But then Hamilton didn't want to seem cowardly on paper, so he concluded that grammar lesson with a little bit of a burst of bluster to show that he was not afraid to duel if he had to. He wrote that he would not be held responsible for hearsay, and he was willing to face the consequences for his actions at all times, a statement that to Burr seemed arrogant to the extreme. So needless to say, Burr's response to Hamilton's letter was not pleasant. He said that Hamilton's letter revealed, quote, nothing of that sincerity and delicacy which you profess to value, meaning you're not behaving like a gentleman, highly offensive insult that Hamilton could not ignore. So now you've got Hamilton feeling insulted that, and that he can't back down. You have Burr feeling insulted and more insistent on fighting, and you can begin to see how from this point on things spiral to their ultimate conclusion, an actual duel. Although Hamilton eventually offered something of an explanation, saying that whatever it was he said, he hadn't meant to be personal. Burr was so insulted by that point that he felt that nothing but a trip to the dueling ground could redeem his honor. So on June 26th, he did what any grievously dishonored gentleman would do. He demanded an apology that was so humiliating that it would force Hamilton to fight. He insisted that Hamilton apologize for anything that he had said that was derogatory to Burr's private character from throughout their entire 15-year rivalry. As Burr expected, and as you are expecting as well, Hamilton could not do this. He refused the apology, and Burr then formally challenged him to a duel, which Hamilton accepted. But Hamilton had one final decision to make. He wasn't sure if he would fire at Burr. To Hamilton, shooting at a man did not seem like a Christian thing to do, and it seems as though when you're in a duel, that's a quirky time to be worried about that, but he was. And for days, he agonized about this decision, not 
quite knowing what he wanted to do. And then finally, the night before the duel, he made his choice. He announced to his friends he was not going to fire at Burr, although it's worth noting, he said, I will not fire at him the first time we exchange fire. If Burr had felt that honor wasn't satisfied, he could have demanded a second exchange of fire. And Hamilton's basically saying, all bets are off if we do this again. But first time around, I'm not going to shoot at Burr. He explained to his second, Nathaniel Pendleton, that his decision resulted from what he called religious scruples and could not be altered. Aware that his decision, dueling but not really shooting at his opponent, would be difficult to understand. For example, people in the future might think he was suicidal. Hamilton decided to explain himself and defend his reputation one last time in a statement addressed to posterity to be made public only in the event of his death. And it's actually, it's an amazing statement that, again, because people haven't really understood dueling, I don't think they understood what this was. But he, it's, it's lengthy because it's Hamilton and he's a man of words. Um, he talks about all of the reasons why he doesn't want to fight a duel. He talks about his family. He talks about his debts, his religious scruples, the fact that he doesn't want to die. He wants to live. He also explained why he felt compelled to fight. He says, well, you know, I, I did seriously insult Burr. And the fact of the matter is I believe everything I've said, so I can't apologize for it because I think it's true. But most fundamental of all, Hamilton felt, and he says this at the very end of the statement, he says, some of you might be wondering why someone who essentially really doesn't believe in dueling, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I going to fight this duel? And he wrote, all the considerations which constitute what men of the world denominate honor impressed on me, as I thought, a peculiar necessity not to decline the call. The ability to be in future useful in those crises of our public affairs which seem likely to happen would probably be inseparable from a conformity with public prejudice in this particular, which is a really long way of saying Hamilton expected a future political crisis. He actually did not think that the Constitution would survive. And in his mind, if he did not satisfy public expectations of leadership, so if he did not defend his honor, he would be dishonored and cast off and useless at that moment of crisis. So basically, Hamilton, like Burr, was dueling to prove himself a worthy political leader. This wasn't an emotional, irrational decision. It wasn't as though he was just suicidal. It resulted from a reasoned course of logic, as did the bulk of the period's political duels. Ridiculous as a political duel may seem to us, clearly to the people involved, duels had a logic. They made sense. So on July 11th, 1804, at about 4 o'clock in the morning, Hamilton and Burr crossed the Hudson River to a dueling ground in Weehawken, New Jersey. Both of them were accompanied by their seconds. Hamilton brought along a doctor. He also brought the dueling pistols, placed in a large sack so that the boatmen rowing across the river could testify in court, if they had to, that they had never seen any guns. And I'll, I'll mention at this point, and if you're interested, I'll be happy to talk about it during Q&A, but um, in the course of researching actually that Affairs of Honor, that book, I discovered um, at the New York Historical Society um, Essentially, the, the trial notes, Burr's second ends up being brought to trial for his participation in the duel, and his, his name is Van Ness. Mr. Van Ness took detailed notes about what everyone said when they were testifying at the trial. So what I found at the New York Historical Society was three or four eyewitness accounts of the Burr-Hamilton duel that nobody had found before. And a lot of the details in those 
accounts, like the one that I just mentioned, that the guns were in a bag. So when the trial happens and they're both, all the people testifying are asked, did you see any guns? And they all say, no, we were carrying a bag. We don't know what was in the bag. It was just a bag. What could have been in the bag? The letter revealed to me all of these amazing rituals and customs that were there just for this purpose, that they would enable people to cover their tracks if they got caught. So Burr and his second, William Van Ness, arrived first. They began to clear brush off of the dueling ground. Hamilton and his second arrived soon after and climbed up to the ground, leaving the doctor and the boatman down below with their backs to the dueling ground. This came in from that letter that I found, that, those notes. They had their backs to the dueling ground so that they could testify in court, which they ultimately did. They didn't see any duel. We were at Weehawken and we heard shots behind us, but we don't know what happened. We didn't see a duel. As agreed upon previously by the two seconds, Burr and Hamilton positioned themselves about 10 yards apart. The seconds loaded the guns and handed them to their principals. Hamilton's second called out, one, two, three, present and two shots rang out, one right after another. Burr's second later recalled that he thought that Burr had been hit because Burr's body kind of jerked as the guns were fired. Burr later explained that his foot had slipped off of a small stone. And of course, it was Hamilton who had been hit. The bullet struck him in the abdomen, pierced his liver, and lodged in his spine. At the bullet's impact, he spun to one side and fell to the ground. Burr was stunned, and his immediate response was to rush towards Hamilton, but his second pulled him away so that Hamilton's doctor wouldn't see him, enabling him to testify in court, as he did, that he hadn't seen Burr on the dueling ground. Meanwhile, Hamilton's second and his doctor rushed to his side. Hamilton gasped something along the lines of, this is a mortal wound doctor, and fainted, and for a moment, they actually thought he had just died. So they carried him back down to the rowboat. They rowed back across to New York. They brought Hamilton to the house of a friend who lived near the shore. By this point, he was in agony. He'd been shot in the spine. Um, he couldn't use powerful painkillers because he had chronic stomach trouble, so he couldn't take strong medications. His friends darkened the room. His family was called, and a small crowd of people began to gather at his bedside. Now, any duel that resulted in bloodshed in this time period would have been interesting, to say the least. But when two men of such importance dueled, it was big news. Burr, at this point, is still vice president. He has not ended that first term yet. Hamilton is Hamilton. So these two men fought a duel, and someone was shot. The duel became common knowledge within hours of it taking place. People were talking about it on the street. There were bulletins being posted on the side of a coffee house in Lower Manhattan announcing, General Hamilton was shot by Colonel Burr this morning in a duel. The general is said to be mortally wounded. The city was soon in a frenzy. Burr, meanwhile, had returned to his home uptown, was having breakfast with a friend, was waiting for word of Hamilton's condition. He had no idea that in Lower Manhattan, people were sort of rousing themselves up into an outrage. New York City had seen a lot of duels, even one or two deaths. So to Burr, this was a duel like any other. It was unfortunate what happened, but unavoidable. Throughout that day and into the next, Hamilton suffered, surrounded by his family and friends. And then at 2 o'clock on the afternoon of July 12th, Hamilton died. Now, as I said earlier, Burr probably did not intend to kill Hamilton. Because remember that in many cases, a duelist who killed his opponent was a failed duelist. And Burr's experience after the duel reveals how that worked. His enemies could and did 
portray him as a murderous killer who had viciously goaded Hamilton to fight, then taken deliberate aim and killed him. Burr was outraged, but he knew what was happening. His enemies were taking advantage of Hamilton's death to destroy Burr's reputation and career. Though no political duelist in New York in the last decade had ever been charged with a crime, though dueling was illegal, Burr was charged with murder in New Jersey and with violating anti-dueling laws in New York. Afraid of mob violence and hoping to escape criminal charges, Burr fled the state. Actually, he ended up in South Carolina. So Burr fled New York, his second fled New York, their close friends fled New York, the boatman who rode them across fled New York, their newspaper editor, anyone who knew Burr just left. And Burr did not return to New York City for eight years in a kind of self-imposed exile of angry and defiant throughout because he really did feel I did just what any man would have done and it's unfortunate what happened but people used what happened a normal duel to get at me to attack me in a kind of spirit of defiance supposedly in later years he referred to quote and these are Burr's words my friend Hamilton whom I shot just <laughs> just like a defiant sort of you know you think you're gonna get to me but you're not gonna get to me Burr like Hamilton, had done what he deemed necessary to bolster his honor and salvage his public career. Both men knew the possible penalties for not fighting. Dishonor, disgrace, destroyed public careers. Given the circumstances, both men made the same choice, risking their lives rather than surrendering their honor. This wasn't an irrational choice. It wasn't a suicidal surrender or a bloodthirsty attack. It was a rational attempt to grapple with the cultural, political, and personal realities of the time. Neither man was eager to duel. As one of Hamilton's friends said after his death, if we were truly brave, we should not accept a challenge, but we are all cowards. The real tragedy of the Burr-Hamilton duel is that both men dueled out of fear, compelled by the mandates of politics and honor Dependent on public opinion for their public careers and sense of self, Burr and Hamilton dueled because they were afraid not to. Thank you. That was terrific. Um, and boy, to put that kind of intense explanation and feeling into that most famous of famous uh, duels uh, seems to have brought to life what those two were thinking uh, that particular day. There's so much ground to, to cover here. And uh, let's, let's ask, what if, many people have wondered, what if, uh, what if Hamilton had lived? What do you suppose his career and life would have been like? Would he have pursued office again? Was he done pursuing elective office? What do you think about that? Um, so it's interesting. I think his political career was, was pretty done at this point, and I think he, he knew that. Um, he, uh, it, wow, microphone issues. Um, in his, towards the end of his life, uh, he wrote a letter saying, Actually, this is a direct quote. This American world was not meant for me. So he really felt that the nation was going in a direction that he didn't understand. I think he understood he wasn't gonna be in politics, but 
what he was beginning to do, and he had just started doing it when he died. He was talking to friends about writing a big book about American government, and he was going to ask different friends to write different essays, kind of like the Federalist. I think he would have been a political commentator. I think he would have been a really angry political commentator, <laughs> but I think he would have been a political commentator. What an interesting turn that would be. And is it fair to say that, that Hamilton's career began uh, dying when George Washington left the political stage because he had al he'd always been, I'll lean over like this, because he had always been Hamilton's champion. And then of course, when he died, uh, everybody who had always wanted to attack Hamilton but couldn't now felt that uh, he was fair game for their attacks. I think that's true, but I also think, in addition, um, Hamilton behaved better when Washington was around, right? Because he knew that Washington was watching and he needed Washington's support. So, you know, Washington dies in 1799. Hamilton, you know, barely makes it five more years and he's gone. So I think having Washington not be there on, on several levels did not help Hamilton much. And what about Aaron Burr? What happened to him after this? You mentioned he finished out his vice presidency, didn't return to New York. Uh, he had an, an ill-fated career, didn't he, afterward? He had a fascinating life, that's for sure. He, and he was, he did finish his vice presidency. So I, over the years, I found letters from people who, so he's vice president, he's presiding over the Senate. I found letters from senators, Federalist senators who had been friends with Hamilton, sitting there saying, how are we supposed to sit here and let this guy preside over us? He killed Hamilton. And you know, they were all, everyone was sort of watching him to see what he looked like. Apparently he looked very stressed. I can't imagine, he must have been. Um, but again, because his career in New York is pretty done at this point, his national career is pretty done at this point. So being Burr, he thinks, okay, what's my next frontier? And he thinks of the frontier. So he decides he's gonna head out west and kind of put himself on the spot. Things were sort of happening out there. He brought along a small group of men who were sort of armed. I think they were all like in buckskin. Uh, and I think he was trying to be an opportunist and in some way or another, um, possibly down around near Mexico, somehow put him, be there when things became unbalanced in some way and in some way he could finagle his way into being in a, a position of power. It's really unclear what he was doing except that he was wandering around with guys and guns in buckskin in the, on, in the western, North America. So he, he does that for a while. Go ahead. Well, and then, and then he wanted to pursue his ambitions for power, and he wound up in the famous treason trial. Can Precisely. you tell us about that? Precisely. So people don't know what the heck he's doing out there, and people begin to go to President Jefferson and say, you know, your former vice president is wandering around with guys and guns, and he appears to have been speaking with like a Spanish minister and maybe an English, you know, British minister. What is he doing? And so Jefferson, actually, he's brought up on charges of treason. It's assumed that what he's doing is somehow or other trying to break up the American nation or create his own empire. People don't know, but he's charged with treason. There's a, and so there's this spectacular treason trial. You know, it was sort of a huge thing. It was all in the newspapers. He's not found guilty of treason, but now at this point he's got, he's bad in New York, his national career is gone, and now he's gone out west, and that didn't work very well either. So now he goes to Europe. And he basically is in exile in Europe for a while. Um, but he becomes friends with um, Mary Wollstonecraft and uh, William Godwin and hangs out with those two. You know, so he has this weird exile. He actually 
to give Burr credit, um, was someone who was really interested in women's rights. He read Mary Wollstonecraft's work, and he couldn't find any other man to talk about it with because no other man would admit to having read it. So he was, he was actually kind of ahead of his time. So he hung out in Europe for a while, but with very little money. Um, ultimately, he ended his life, he comes, came back to New York, practiced law for a little while, but it's kind of tragic. I mean, even though he killed Hamilton, he becomes sort of like a tourist attraction. And people would come to New York and they would want to like see Burr, like part of their trip to New York would be to see Burr. So they would like, you know, wander to his office and like look in the window so they could say they'd, they'd had a Burr sighting. It couldn't have been very fun for him at all, so, but eventful. You mentioned that uh, Burr and Hamilton had, a, had many uh, similarities, and you just alluded to uh, the fact that Burr was an early advocate for women's rights, equality for women, while Hamilton was known as one of the leaders to abolish slavery. But the two couldn't get together on, on those two issues together? No, and actually, Hamilton gets a little extra credit for that that he... Too much? Too yeah. much credit? Tell us about yeah. that. So, so Hamilton was anti-slavery, and he belonged to the New York Manumission Society, um, so he's on the right side. Um, but he's gotten a lot of credit in recent years for being like this. I, I think Americans, I think we want so badly to have a, a strong anti-slavery founder that he became that guy because he was anti-slavery, but it was never a main issue for him. You know, when you, when you look at um, Hamilton's writings and you see something that he's really interested in, Boy, when he's really interested in something, he's churning out like, you know, 50 pages, he's all over the place, you know, he, he had so much energy, it would spill over with slavery, which the cause of slavery is just not there. So he belonged to that organization, actually had a student, um, an undergraduate, do a, a research paper this last year in which he was trying to figure out what Hamilton did when he was part of the Manumission Society, and the answer was not that much. <laughs> He went to meetings, that's what he did. So he, he doesn't get that kind of a credit. So Burr is, it's, I think, more of a forward-looking kind of a guy than Hamilton. He, he, his advocacy of women was, was warranted. Yeah. Mm -hmm, that reputation. Let's turn to some crucial details about Alexander Hamilton that you may have heard. Uh-oh. Is it true, is it true that Martha Washington, who knew Alexander Hamilton very well, named her cat after Alexander Hamilton. And could you share the story about that? I, I can. I don't know if you, you're going to know this story. So um, that is, for those of you who don't know, that is in the play. It's a line in the play, right, that um, Martha Washington during the war named her feral tomcat Hamilton. And it is true that Hamilton was a ladies' man and that he was frisking all over the place. You know, he was 19 years old during the war. Uh, he even wrote, he would write these letters to Elizabeth, his wife-to-be, about the women he was seeing at camp, which if I were Elizabeth, I would have been mighty peeved. Um, but the Tomcat story isn't true. But what's funny about that fact is a, a colleague of mine, who's a historian and has written a book about Hamilton's reputation, was really irked by that fact. Like, the, the one thing that made him mad about the, in the play was the Tomcat story. So he started writing letters and emailing Lynn Miranda, saying, you know, the Tomcat story is not true. And then me saying to me, you know, the Tomcat story is not true. You've got to get, get a hold of Lynn Miranda and tell him to take that out of the play, because it's not true. So at some point, over the course of him, of Miranda writing the play, I got to know him a little bit. <laughs> he emailed me and he said, 
who is this guy <laughs> with the cat story? Like, who is this guy? You know. So he actually, um, I think in the book that came out to go along with the play, I think he actually acknowledges in print that the story is not true. Not true. Not and, true. and I think my colleague like goaded him into. We're very glad to have clarity on that crucial <laughs> fact about Hamilton's Little career. Little did you know. So you mentioned the play, and several people in this room have seen Hamilton play, the Tony Award-winning... Or listened uh, to it, I would guess. ...Broadway play, or have listened to the soundtrack, right? So one thing you should know is that Ron Chernow, the author of the massive biography, has on many occasions in many different places expressed his deep indebtedness to Joanne for her research. And uh, even saying that, for example, that he hadn't known uh, until Joanne uh, brought it to his attention through her own publications about the 10 duels that Hamilton had fought before the Aaron Burr duel. Now, why is that important? Because Lin-Manuel creates a song called the Ten Dueling Commandments, and that wonderful song, the favorite of many, is entirely attributable to Joanne's research. And so he pays, he has paid uh, great tribute to you for the work you've done, and if you've been to the play, you'll see Joanne's name in the playbill. You'll see it in the program. I tell us tell, a little I bit about to, your yeah. relationship with Well, with I have to tell play. you that story, too, because I, I talked about the document that I found at New York Historical Society with all of the rituals and things in it. So when I first saw the play, it was off-Broadway, and I went with a friend of mine who's a historian, and they got to that song, The Ten Dual Commandments, and they start singing, and there's a lyric about the doctor having his back to the dueling ground so he can have deniability. And that word, the, the sentence comes out, and I turn to my friend and I say, that's my document. Like, that's my document. Like, nobody knows that except me. That's my document, and it's from my book. And I, I convinced myself, because Ron Chernow had interviewed me and talked to me when he was writing his biography, I convinced myself by the end of the play, like, probably it's me through Chernow. Like, he didn't, Lin-Manuel couldn't have known about my book. But then I met him. And I said, I, I brought him a copy, actually, of Affairs of Honor, you know, to say, wow, thank you for doing that play. It's pretty amazing. And he said, I have that already. And I said, you do? Is that song based on Affairs of Honor? He's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> so then I was like, I am the history professor who, <laughs> as part of my book, being sung on Broadway. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> oh, Isn't that great? Um, so uh, let's talk about the play. Um, because, as, as you know, it's, it's a super popular play and it's being shown all over the country, but historians who have expressed their admiration for it have nevertheless identified some flaws. Talk to us a little bit about your evaluation of the play, how you feel about it, and the historical flaws in the play, if you will. Sure. Um, it, I mean, I'll start out by saying my immediate response as a historian was, they're singing about the assumption of state debts in a Broadway musical, right? They're singing George Washington's farewell address. What is not to like, right? How is this, how is this even possible? Um, but the fact of the matter is, and you know, I, I, I don't think Lynn had any assumption that, you know, he knew that he was playing with the facts to create a good play. Um, there are a lot of aspects about Hamilton's 
personality that are probably true to life, but Hamilton's politics are really, for the most part, not reflected in the play. I mean, he, he sings a couple cabinet battle rap songs, um, which generally are true, but, you know, Hamilton, um, and, and this is the ultimate irony, as, as Dave was saying, so for decades, I've been working on Hamilton, for decades, I lectured about Hamilton. No one knew who he was. Like, no one knew who he was. So I have, my computer is full of these lectures, and they begin with, let me tell you about someone you've probably never heard of, Alexander Hamilton. He's a founder, and you should include him among the other founders. Now, people are so in love with Hamilton, I spend all my time saying, he's not so great. He's not as great as you thought. And, you know, he, is a man, he was an extremist, uh, and he was a man of extreme politics, you know? He, he wanted the government to be extremely centralized. He wanted the presidency to be extremely strong. He had this unfortunate impulse of wanting to call in the military when there was civic unrest of any kind. You know, he, he, was, a, he was really extreme. That kind of stuff doesn't need to be in a Broadway musical, but, you know, he, he's a more complicated person than the show suggests, and the show makes him out to be this sort of, you know, immigrant pulling himself up, and that in the time wouldn't have been quite how he would have been seen. I mean, actually in the time it would have been more that he bopped from one part of the empire to another part of the empire, um, and he didn't particularly like immigrants, you know, so when, when <laughs> I know, sort of, <laughs> the irony, um, he, he began to dislike immigrants because they tended to vote for Jefferson and the Republicans. So he began saying things about, you know, it should be only native-born people who are voting and, yeah. So he's complicated. He's a complicated character. That's one of the things that has kept me interested all these years is that he's self-destructive and complicated and um, really present on paper but it's really a challenge to figure him out. And he's so extreme that you want to figure him out, right? Just like with the duel. You, uh, very early on, I wanted to understand, like, how did that make sense? Like, how, how did, what, you know, how, how could that make sense? He, he's very much on paper, but you really have to dig among his letters to kind of begin to understand him. So it, it's the fact that he's flawed and, and self-destructive, I think, that initially kept my interest. We'll turn to his letters in a second and your fascination with those letters and how you develop that interest. But this enormous popularity that the play has enjoyed, where does this end? Do you see any end in sight or is it just going to continue to follow this amazing trajectory? I have no idea. You know, I mean, it, it, the fact that it exists at all is kind of mind-blowing to me, again, considering the fact that nobody knew who he was and I was reading Hamilton's papers and talking about Hamilton and he was non-existent and now it's like, you know, you know about Hamilton? It's like, what universe is this that I'm, that I'm in? Um, and obviously the people who have done the play and actually also um, some educational organizations want to capitalize on it, its ability to educate, you know, kids are, I've done a lot of speaking at high schools since the play came out, high school students, uh, junior high school students, they have every lyric memorized. I'll get up on the stage and begin talking and I can see them mouthing the lyrics that go along with whatever it is that I'm saying. You know, so that's, to me, this is a supreme teaching moment, right? And, and you can teach against the play. You could, you, I'm not saying that, you know, we all need to like celebrate the play. You can teach students by saying, well, you know, th th this play basically shows eight guys doing a lot of things. 
and at the time, it would have been eight white guys doing a lot of things, and clearly that's not how it happened, so let's talk about how it happened. I, I, I think it's a supreme teaching moment, and, and so I don't know how long it'll last. I mean, I guess partly it'll be as long as kids are uh, excited by it, but there's also um, a project that the Hamilton people are working on now, which of course is now gonna continue on the, the love of Hamilton. Um, the people, I, I think along these lines actually, the people, the producer and the um, stage designer and the director of Hamilton um, and Lynn Miranda um, came together and they want to create, I keep calling it an exhibit and that doesn't quite work, um, it's, it's more like an experience. They're, they're creating a, a sort of Hamilton experience. Just gonna be like, I don't know, 10 rooms and you'll go from room to room, you'll have um, headphones on, Lynn Miranda's gonna take you through and in each room you're gonna learn about the stuff around the play. So like you're gonna learn about St. Croix, but you're gonna learn about slavery in St. Croix and the fact that you know empires were founded on slavery. So it's gonna be, it's huge multi-million dollar thing that is ultimately going to travel with the show. So it's going to, it's going to be this massive kind of tent. Um, so they're trying to kind of take advantage of this moment to teach around the play. I mean, I, I, the way I was told about it was Lynn wants to fix the play, but he wants to correct it, um, which is great, right? So it's like excellent. And so, so you're working on your next Hamilton book called Hunting for Hamilton. So I suppose when that's published, we're going to have another explosion of interest oh, of in Hamilton, of course, <laughs> sure. right? Of course. So speaking of, of the publication of your book, what, about, what is it about your books that are published on September 11? <laughs> First September 11 of 2001 and the next one coming out this September. Why, could your publisher have changed the date, moved it one day or the other? I tried. Um, yeah, I, I, this has to be, I can't imagine how many other like double September 11th human beings are out there as far as book publishing. Um, I, the first time was bad and it was bad because that was a horrible time and I felt bad about feeling bad about the fact that you know no one was interested in the book and I felt bad about that and then I felt guilty about feeling bad because there are far more important things to feel bad about so that was complicated but then I you know the moment passed I've been working on the book that's coming out this September for 17 years and 17 years 17 years and any other year besides this one if it had come out the, the, the press apparently wants it to come out on a Tuesday. I guess Tuesdays are the days when books tend to be released. And this year, in September, September 11th is a Tuesday. Last year it wouldn't have been. The year before that it wouldn't have been, but it's like my dumb luck is that I finished this year and when I asked the press and said, well, can we make it like earlier? The week before, the week later? Well, the week before is too close to Labor Day and the week later is they want to get as much uh, time in before the election for me to talk about Congress. So the answer is no, I can't move it from September 11th, so I'm stuck. So let's treat this as, as some couch time now. How does a oh, teenage girl who grows up in Queens become so fascinated with Alexander Hamilton that you begin to read the 32 volumes of Hamilton's letters? What was wrong with you? <laughs> History geekdom, no. Um, part of it is, part of it was the bicentennial, right? So it, there was a lot of early American history floating around and I was very interested in it and excited by it. And I went to the library at some point and I began reading biographies 
and I, I remember reading about Adams, and I read about Richard Henry Lee, and I, anyway, I was working my way through the shelf at our little library, and I got to Hamilton, and this was a strange guy, right? This, well, who is this guy? You know, there wasn't a lot written about him. He was born illegitimate and poor in the in West Indies. He dies in this duel. You know, I was like 13 years old or something, 12, 13, 14. That was an interesting guy. So I read, I took a book out, which will remain nameless, and read this book. And I didn't like the book. I didn't believe it. If I could recreate what that, why, I, I can't. But for some reason, I didn't like the biography. And so I went to the library and I asked the librarian, the guy who wrote this book, what did he read to, so he could say these things? Because I want to read them. Because I don't think, I don't believe what he says. So the librarian showed me the, the volumes, all of these volumes of the Hamilton papers, and I took down, you know, volume one. And there was, you know, it, it, I wasn't getting history through a historian anymore. Now it was just the person talking to me. And to me, that was just fascinating. You know, it was like, oh, this is like the real history. You know, this is, this is the actual stuff. So I just was reading Hamilton's letters and I would read through all the volumes and then I would go back and start again and do it again. I just, it was like an ongoing cycle. I didn't know historian was a job. I didn't know, I, I was doing it just because it was fun. <laughs> Uh, and because, you know, you do that a couple of times, you sort of start to get to know the person whose letters you're reading. I mean, this is everything he's written, every letter he wrote, every government report he wrote, everything he wrote. So basically, you know, I always think uh, if I were back in time and I met Alexander Hamilton, I would totally freak him out because I know every word <laughs> he wrote. I'd be like, you know what you said in 1792. So, you know, you, but you get to know someone really well. And so over the years, not only was I interested in him, but then I began to really understand him and his politics in a way that obviously I couldn't have planned when I started out. You know, it's something of a, of a parlor game for Americans to ask, what would the founders have thought about this or that or that person? Given the fact that Hamilton was so committed to checks and balances and separation of powers, what might he have to say about the current state of American governmental affairs? Um, I know, exactly. Ooh. Um, well, I will answer that. I'll start out answering that in a general way. Because I, I referenced it in my talk. That, and he made, wrote that final statement, and he thought there'd be a future crisis that might happen, and he had to protect his reputation. He really did not think the Constitution was gonna survive. He, there's a, an amazing memo that he wrote a few days after the Constitutional Convention. So he's like one of the loudest and earliest people calling for a stronger government. And he's pushing and he's pushing. And then finally, Constitutional Convention, and now there's a stronger government. And you would think he would be like, yes. Well, so he leaves the Constitutional Convention. He's a lawyer, he's, he's thinking in a lawyerly way. He writes a memo, it's only to himself. He doesn't show it to anybody. What do I think is going to happen next? And he has like, you know, pr pros and cons. Well, maybe this will happen, maybe that'll happen. And he says, well, you know, maybe uh, Washington will be made the first president. That would be good. People trust Washington and he'll pick good men and people will trust the men he puts in office and that will be good too. So maybe that'll work or maybe he won't become president or maybe people won't trust the people he puts in office, in which case, the states will probably turn on each other and maybe France and England will sweep in and swallow up some of the states and maybe there'll be civil warfare. And the puncher in this memo is at the end, pointing to that latter scenario, he says, that's probably what's gonna happen, right? He's, he, 10 days after the convention, 
He's predicting its collapse. And he, so for his entire political career, he was doing what he felt he needed to do to prop up the government. That made him kind of an extremist. But, you know, I, I think he already was wary about the government. He was really wary about demagogues. Right, this demagogues, was, the rise of a demagogue. That was that, and now, that wasn't just him. So in that time period, that was like you know, there hadn't been a republic, a modern republic of the sort. You know, it was a world of monarchies, and then you had this country that was trying this experimental modern republic. So the founders were really well versed in you know ancient Greek and Roman history. They looked at all of the republics that they could look over time, and saw that okay, well. What's the worst danger? What, what has killed all the republics of the past? And the short answer is demagogues, right? Someone gets power, and it's a person who shouldn't have gotten power, and once they're in power, they do whatever they want, and they get that power by appealing to the people's worst instincts, and there's a whole you know, history of demagogues. So that was you know, not just Hamilton, but that was people understood that republics fall because of demagogues. So you know, I, I think... Hamilton and probably other founders would be thinking that we are in an interesting political moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> interesting can describe a lot of things. Yeah. Yes, indeed. The, so there was this widespread fear about the fragility and future of the Republic, yeah. and it would largely, if, if it fell, it would largely be attributable to the demise of checks and balances, uh, to wit, the legislature would not carry out its duties, Judiciary might not serve to check and balance the legislature and the executive. And the people's ugly instincts being uh, pandered to by this demagogue and getting people worked up so that they were no longer focused on checks and balances and process, but they were, you know, it was a wave of emotion and a wave of emotion was not going to be good for the republic. So yeah, that would have been what they would have assumed. And, and so, Professor, as you've read the Federalist Papers, and a lot of people in our audience are familiar with the Federalist Papers, do you have one or two or three favorite Hamilton Federalist Papers? And why? Why would those be? I, I, have, um, I have a favorite paragraph from a favorite. That's just a favorite. Yeah paper, but a favorite, favorite paragraph. paragraph. Um, and it, it's from the first Federalist essay. It's the first paragraph in the first Federalist essay. And this will be a bad paraphrase. But Hamilton basically says that um, the American people have been given this opportunity to decide for all time whether governments can be created through debate and process and choice, or if they're always going to be determined based on warfare and accident. And if we fail in what we're doing now, it will be a tragedy for all of humankind because we'll be saying basically you can't create a government based on reason and debate and compromise, that you always have to be dependent on chance and warfare. I have not done his words justice, but it's such a powerful statement. And I read it in all of my classes because it gives you a sense of the significance of what they thought they were doing, right? They really did feel that they were engaged in a political experiment. They didn't know if it would work. And it, they, it had big stakes to them, which is part of why the politics of this period was so extreme, because they truly did feel that they were sort of helping to decide for all time if this kind of a government, if you could create it in this way with a bunch of guys in a room debating, and then if that could survive. That's a very poignant, powerful sentence featuring the view of America as a, as a shining city on a hill and reiterated by Lincoln. Um, 
how, how do you view the scope of American history in light of the premise and, and perhaps promise of that sentence? Well, um, you know, I think it's often tempting um, to see America as exceptional, right? To believe in American exceptionalism. Um, in some ways, we're in a moment that is teaching us not to believe in American exceptionalism. Um, but I think, I don't know, I don't, I'm not quite sure what I want to say about how far I want to go down that path. Historians usually don't like to offer opinion no. about current affairs. You're better at talking about something that occurred this, though, 200 will, years ago. I will say I know. this. I will talk about a pattern. Um, and it's an interesting pattern, again, as a historian. Um, so we're, we're in this interesting fraught moment. Um, and the book I have coming out in September uh, ends with the 1850s, which is an interesting fraught moment. And the 1790s, which is what I was just talking about, becomes an interesting fraught moment. And the 1960s were the same kind of interesting fraught moment. So one thing I will say is that there's a bundle of phenomena that, that are bundled together that polarize parties, distrust of national institutions, um, the, the press, like actually new technologies. Before the Civil War, the telegraph, suddenly like people were learning news faster than they ever had before. There, there are things that kind of come together and help spin politics into being extreme. And so I don't know if it makes us feel better or worse, but the moment that we're in echoes moments that we've had before in an interesting kind of a way. You know, as, as our time together winds down here, uh, tell us a little bit about your new book, Field of Blood, and what an interesting title. Where did you draw that from? Uh, because I know that uh, 150 people here are going to want to buy your book on <laughs> September 11th when it's published. You won't forget the date. Um, so the, the title comes from a letter that was written to Charles Sumner after the caning of Sumner. So that's the one incident that everyone knows was that the abolitionist, Massachusetts abolitionist Charles Sumner was caned by South Carolinian Preston Brooks. Uh, and that's, at the time it was huge. And that's whenever I tell people I'm writing a book about congressional violence, they always say, that guy. And I'm like, yeah, the guy, like Sumner, that's the guy. Um, so after that happened, someone wrote a letter to Sumner and it said something along the lines of, um, I knew that something was gonna happen on that field of blood, the floor of Congress. The reason why he said that is actually what drives the book. And that is, over those 17 years, I discovered roughly 70, 70 violent incidents in the House and Senate between roughly 1830 and 1860 that were largely censored out of the congressional record. So that field of blood comment is actually someone saying, happily for me in print, not like, how shocking. He's like, I knew. I knew. We know what Congress is like. It was going to happen. Something was going to happen, and you're the guy it happened to. So the book looks at um, how those fights worked, what it meant, what was the logic of it, what did it show about America, and ultimately, how does it help to lead to the Civil War? We're just about out of time. I want to tell the audience that this program will be rebroadcast on KISU on July 30 at 7 o'clock. And I want to, again, thank our very generous sponsors for making uh, this program possible. Uh, we at the City Club and the Alturas Institute are very proud to be able to say thanks to the Bank of Idaho and the Idaho National Laboratory and 
Floor, Idaho, and, and Mountain View Hospital, and also to be able to thank a number of very generous individuals, some of whom are in this room. Your very commitment, your support of the undertakings here at City Club and at Alturas Institute helped to fulfill the framers promise, as Joanne Freeman just pointed out, uh, that in fact we hope we can be a government which proceeds on the basis of discussion, deliberation, and debate, and not suffer the imposition of government upon us. That's what the City Club and the Alturas Institute work to confirm. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a tremendous program with Professor Joanne Freeman of Yale University. Let's show her uh, the depths of our appreciation with a nice round of support and applause. Thank you. That concludes this rebroadcast of the City Club of Idaho Falls featuring Dr. Joanne Freeman, Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. To find out more about tonight's lecture, the guest speaker, or if you missed part of our broadcast and want to hear the entire lecture, visit kisu.org. Find the post on our homepage. The next City Club of Idaho Falls Forum takes place August 22nd. Once again, a dinner meeting beginning at 6.30 with remarks at 7 p.m. at the ISU Benyon Student Union Building. The speaker, Scott Anderson, President and Chief Executive Officer of Zions Bank. He speaks on innovation, investment, and education. That's August 22nd. RSVP at ifcityclub.com by August 19th. This is KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls, Rexburg. Coming up next, Matt's Movie Tracks on FM 91.